Brad holds the belief that the best sub sandwich is from Publix. Dude, you are so right on. Thank you. Absolutely. I try to tell people. No, man, you're right. That's a staple of my, like, returning from the airport, stop by Publix to get a Boar's Head Italian sub on the way home. Oh, wow. Yep, you just said Italian, and I think we just became best friends. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast, the podcast run by the guys that run everything else. Here with me, as always, is my good old pal, Chris. Hey, guys. And my name is Brad. And today I we have... I thought you were going by Bradley. Oh, now. you're right. Uh, what's up, guys? This is... Uh, I'm Bradley. <laughs> it still feels kind of yucky. Yeah. And I don't know. I just need to push back, push beyond it. Just, I'm Bradley. Just call me Bradley. Bradley. Um, today we have an awesome guest. Chris Raybold is on the show. Um, we just uh, finished the interview with him, and I thought it was awesome. And yeah. I think we became best friends. You, I think you guys that. did. Yeah. Yep. I don't want to go into too many of the details, but let's just say that. Uh, pub- might- what? Wait. What? I thought I thought you guys planned a camping trip or something. Oh yeah. No. That's that's. An, I don't want to talk about that, but we do agree that pub subs are the best um, subs on the planet. Yeah. And so. If you get anything out of this episode, know that um, Publix grocery stores um, have the best subs. Not a sponsor. Not a sponsor yet. Yeah. Uh, but hey, we're just going to go right into it. And so enjoy this episode and we'll see you guys in a couple more weeks. Sorry we haven't been recording as many episodes. Chris has a really busy life. Well, and, and I also lost my voice for like two weeks. Well, it was like a week and a half. Yeah. I've never had that happen before. Yeah, It wasn't because you were screaming. It was just you were sick, right? No, it was the batteries. That I I was testing a lot of nine volt batteries. Oh, yeah, and I got think, it. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I've, I think we talked about this, but I've never done. I've, I'm too afraid to put that. Yeah, put a nine volt on the tongue. So yeah, yeah it's probably a reasonable fear. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, enjoy the interview. We'll be back in a couple weeks. Well, I'm just gonna kind of. We're just gonna kind of just jump into it. Um, okay. Yeah, that's fine. And so, Chris, maybe you you can tell us. Um, and for those listening right now, we're gonna we're gonna call our Chris Starrett. We're gonna call him Starrett yeah. and give Chris uh, the actual title of Chris. But Chris, can, can you give us a real quick I'm snapshot honored. of like uh, maybe what you're doing, who you are, what you do? Maybe like if I just sat next to you on an airplane and was like, "Hey, so what do you do? What would you what would you tell me?" Sure. Yeah, and I and I kind of have a condensed version of of what that is because my career, like most people, has had a, a specific trajectory. Um, so I'm a front of house engineer, obviously, um, and I currently find myself and have for the past decade <clears throat> doing a lot. I have been fortunate to find myself doing a lot of uh, higher end tours, uh, work with a lot of my, my resume, my client roster is diverse, but there's been a lot of pop acts, which nowadays those tend to be the bigger tours, um, sure. at least on average. Yeah. So a lot of pop stuff. There's also I've got one client that's now kind of longstanding. That's a that's a modern country client. I've done some some jazz, some rock, some this and that. But I just seem to be fortunate enough to stay busy uh, on uh, on the higher end of things. Previous to this, I spent. Uh, I just told you I'm in my hometown of Athens, Georgia, and the reason I'm in Athens, Georgia, is for a decade, a little bit more. I worked for a band out of here called Widespread Panic. So before I started doing these big you know, gigantic tours. Um, right. 
I was doing the you know the jam band thing, the rock thing, and and before that, I kind of had the the upbringing that a lot of people do, where I was doing clubs and bars and weddings and frats and all that good kind of stuff, and uh you know worked worked my way up there. So it, it's been a stepped curve for me. I didn't jump right into the big time. I was fortunate to have a little bit of a ride to get there, which makes me very grateful for where I am now. So sure. what if that kind paints of... any sort of a picture. Yeah, there you go. that's super helpful. What size um, uh, crowds were widespread disco pulling before? Like, was it like a giant leap for you? Is, was it widespread disco? Is yeah, with it, well, it's funny. There's panic at the disco, and there's widespread panic. Both widespread are panic. Different that's it. Kind of, yeah, no, Starrett's cool. a big that's fan fine. of panic at the disco, so I'm that's a, probably why I'm a big fan of widespread <laughs> panic at the disco. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> uh, well, when, when I first worked with widespread panic. I was 19, and that's when I was, that was in 1995. At that point in time, they had just graduated from the big rock clubs, of which now there are very few at all rock clubs, right. but from the big rock clubs into the bigger rock clubs, the occasional theater, this and that. When I came back to them in 2000, they had hit a pretty good stride, and that was actually about the biggest that they um, have ever been with that time for about the next five or ten years or so. Yeah. And we'd do everything from, we would do a 1,500-seat club in some small market, but that's when they were doing a lot of small arenas, too. Okay. Um, so, I mean, we'd have crowds upwards of 10,000, and then, of course, we do big outdoor things, far, far more. But um, that ran the gamut. In, in the course of a week, I might be doing, like I said, a big rock club, but then I might also do an arena. So, um, so they were, like, they were all pretty over well the board. known then. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, they're still going now in a much more relaxed capacity because, of course, they're older and they can afford to be. But, um, I, you know, the bulk of that time, I really spent a lot of time in theaters, a lot of time doing overly loud rock shows in 2,500-seat theaters. If I had to average it out, that's kind of where we were. Yeah. Um, so, which, which was a great place. Now, I, I miss mixing a lot of those, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of people know this about us in this podcast. We do a ton of research on our guests before they arrive and yeah, uh, tons. wanted to know, uh, ask you about your time at Middle Tennessee State University and, <laughs> and what, uh, yeah, man. what were, what do you think, I mean, what were like some things you learned at school that at, for me, school seems such a long time ago, but was there anything, mm-hmm. you know, specifically, I mean, that school is, is pretty known for, um, you know, recording arts and I mean, it's just outside of Nashville. So in a cool location but is there anything that you learned and you know that college level that you kind of still carry with you yeah absolutely and i tell people all the time um you know for me it was interesting because i both parts went to school and worked at the same time so when i was up there in murfreesboro as you mentioned right outside of nashville you know i would go to class and then i would also work until you know whatever two in the morning and you know, some semesters I'd go to school more than I'd work, and some semesters I'd drop out of school and focus on work, but I tried to make sure that I was getting the hands-on in the real world, which, of course, was, you know, uh, doing live gigs. So a lot of bars, a lot of clubs, a lot of setting up my own PA, that sort of thing. But I coupled it with the theory from school. And as you mentioned, MTSU, is it's got the oldest four-year program of its kind in the country and that's what drew me to it plus i'm from the area was uh looking for an actual four-year degree the irony in all this is i never graduated i ended up a semester short got a gig left so 
Um, but uh, for me, it was great. While there was plenty of hands-on at school, first of all, there was no live for me in school. It was all studio, okay. even though I knew I always wanted to make live. Uh-huh. But for me, it was just the notion of where at night I might be out setting things up, plugging things in, making them work, somehow making a show happen. During the day, I was learning the how and why of it all, which to me right. means a lot. Yeah. Like, I understood what a direct box was doing. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Or I understood why feedback occurred when a wedge was placed behind a certain microphone with a certain pattern. It wasn't just this mystery, you know, that I unraveled. There was theory coupled with real-world application. So for me, and that even goes down to, like, an electronics class that I took, you know, like, you know, learning resistor codes and learning sure. how circuits worked and those sorts of things. It just helped me understand why things were doing what they were. And I've noticed later in life slash career, I'll find myself at times being intimidated by current technologies because a lot of times I'm moving so fast, I don't, I'm not keeping up with everything and technologies are coming my way and I'm kind of understanding how to use them, but I'm not always knowing why they're doing what they're doing. And back in the day, because those two things went hand in hand, it was just a more calming way of going about it. So um, I'm trying to get back in the thing now where I'm sort of relearning to study, if that makes sense. I'm trying to go back to the period where I'm getting uh, academic knowledge of how things work, which with the internet now is so easy. Just look it up. Yeah, I was going to say, where where do you, I mean, you're, you know, you probably know this, you're pretty well known as a front of house guy in our, in our industry here. And so there's a lot of talk of, there's a reason why you're really well known because you're really great at it. But like, where do you, where, and we've asked Pooch this too. It's like, where do you guys go that are like, you guys are at the top of your game. It's like, Uh where do you guys go to get better? Like, is it, Hey, well, I mean, what do you do? Man, that's an awesome question. And first of all, you know, someone can't say what you just said without me acknowledging it. That would be the lamest thing I could do to just let that comment go. So thank you very much for the comment. Um, but that's a great question because, like I, you know, mentioned, part of the problem when you when you are fortunate enough to have a wave of success is that wave is constant and nonstop. And if you're not careful, and and this is coming from literally where I am right now, I have realized in the past year or two, I'm like, man, you need to slow down and catch back up because what's happened is is when you just go from gig to gig, 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 and all you're worried about is performance. You're just specking the same things that work, incorporating right. a little of the new, but really focusing on getting results. Yeah. And in the process, I just haven't had enough time, slash, if I'm honest, I'm tired and lazy, and haven't been looking into new technologies as much. And I'm realizing now, hey, if I don't rectify that now, I'm going to be behind or I'm going to be what I see, which is guys that are sort of these legacy mixers that are totally dependent on others because they've let certain things pass them by. So yeah, right. the answer to how do you, how you do that, you know, how do you rectify that quote unquote problem of being so busy and successful and not paying attention is you simply pay attention. And it, it's exactly what I used to do back in the day. And back in the day, I did it more through the trade bags. You know, I would just scour mix or pro sound news or whatever came out. Right. You know, literally if you're curious about Dante, just go Google Dante. The, the problem 
is it's the information age and you're going to be overwhelmed and inundated with information. But our sources, for me, it's literally just getting on the computer and Googling or I'm fortunate enough now to work with a lot of really smart, really talented people on the tech side. I'll just call somebody up from a sound company yeah. and be like, man, I know this is the most ridiculous question for you. You do it all day long. But how does blah, blah, blah work when it comes to network? Or these, sure. these things that I just don't know very well. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, there's this thing called the X32. Have you heard of that? <laughs> you might look into I, it for touring. I want to say I have, but apparently that's the next thing I need to Google. Yeah, just, I think the touring world hasn't seen an X32 at, at some of the concerts. Oh, an size. X32. I thought you said DX32. No, 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 no. An X32, <laughs> yeah. I think you would be pushing. <laughs> yes. You'd pushing boundaries back. <laughs> yeah, I mean. That's no, what, and that's what's funny. Man, I'll tell you what's funny. I'll go to a bar and I'll see some small format digital console that I've never seen before and I'll see some guy using some iPad app right. that I've never seen before. And these things are commonplace now. That's right. how live entertainment is done. Yep. I've never yep. touched them. Yeah. yeah. On that. And I, and I have told, I've actually, I've mentioned this to my girlfriend before. I'm like, you know, you're going to laugh but I would be more intimidated walking into this club right now, this <laughs> church, than I would a hundred inputs on an SD7. Man, yeah. You know what I mean? Because you have to try and find how to get it, to the right page I don't know on your it. iPad. <laughs> yeah. It's true, though, man. Like, you laugh, but it's 100% true. Yeah. I would have to, someone would have to hold my hand through the interface of it all. Yeah. You know? Totally. Um, so, it, which is, it's kind of humbling, but it's true. Sure. On on consoles, on, since we're on consoles, um, I mm-hmm. what, do you, what do you currently mix on? Are you still SSL or... I, it's, it's funny. Really what I use primarily are still Digico's. Digico. Um, I used it. I went, I was on both Digico and Avid for years. I would kind of bounce back and forth when Avid was still digital design. Then it got to the point to where when you started doing, this is maybe right at 10 years ago, when you started or a little less, when you started doing large, large input acts, Digico was really the, the only way because yep. they were the only people that could handle the channel count. In that time, a lot of manufacturers have caught up, and yeah. I, it, we're at a great time. There are so many consoles I'm yes. in, interested out there. I like the Digico stuff, of course. I like sure. SSL. I use that on one of my acts. Um, but, I mean, I like what Avid and Yamaha are doing now as well. Sure. Um, Do you? So there's just so many. But for, for me, I d- tend to go towards Digico just because they are so fast so well laid out ergonomically that if I am in a situation where I can, and I don't know what situation is not like this, where you need to get results fast, it's right. just too quick for me to get them on the Digico. Yeah, right. I just kind of, by default, lean that way. Well, well, we've kind of gotten to the point with like digital consoles, I feel like, at least the higher-end consoles, where it's like, man, they all sound good, you know, so it, it mm-hmm. it's really what you pick. So for you, is it kind of more... What's most important to you is a is the workflow, or is it like, oh, I'm picking this console because I like the way it sounds? I hate to say this, but I tend to go towards, you know, the end result is all that matters. Sure. But I go towards workflow only because it's just I want to start getting good results quicker. Like, mm. I... With the Digico platform, it sounds phenomenal. It sounds outstanding. There's also a part of me that will tell you it sounds like nothing. And that I like that because I can then make it sound like it. Sure. If that makes sense. I can then use certain tools to shape the sound. So it doesn't, 
pin me to the wall and kind of stick me with one particular sound. There are other offerings out there that I've found now that I feel do have more of a quote-unquote sound, sonic signature of their own, that, that I really like. The problem is, um, again, I'm just so fast on the Digicos. They're so readily available. And what Digico excels at like no one else is the ergonomics and is the workflow. Yeah. So it's always it's bugged me for years when I'll see people how to PA because it rigs faster than another. Because I'm like, wait a minute, yeah. that's not what we're here for. I know that that matters greatly, sure. but how does it sound? And, but then uh, on the console end of things, I, I kind of go for features first, knowing that I can get the sound I want. With the tools, you know, yeah. Yeah, so, I, I mean, the Digico stuff sounds so good, but, yeah. you know, it's, if I'm honest, no, man, it's just what I'm fastest on, sure. you know? Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change directions here. I... I got to hear your mix one time so far. I was at uh, a Bruno Mars show, um, I think it was late last year, here in Dallas um, at the American Airlines Center. And I took my wife, I surprised her because she likes Bruno more than me, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So I took her to the show. We got floor seats off of this really sketchy Craigslist deal. Uh, But Uh So we're there, and I think, man, that show... And I don't know what it's like for you, but it was super fun. Like that band, I don't know. I mean, they were so good. And I don't know how they can dance and be that good. Uh, But if I had to describe the mix, I would describe it clean and tight. Like it was a very tight mix. Uh, And it was super clean. But like what what was like your, I don't know, it outside of the pyro almost blowing my eardrums yeah uh, oh, man, what was like the, the most fun part of like that of that of a show like that like is it are there parts where you get to you know you get to a point where maybe you're pretty happy with things but like you know like what what's a fun part for you on that show yeah again i have to say thank you very much for the comment uh and you know that makes me feel good too only because that is exactly how i Want, that's how I want my mixes to come across. Is I'm really into clean and powerful, um, you know, precise things with their place, um, not overly bombastic and you know very specific. So thanks yeah, a lot. Sure. That, yeah. that, that's what I'm shooting for. The you know the the other side of that is, and this is kind of part of your question. Once you kind of start to lose perspective when you're on those tours that run for so long. Um, you know, by the end of every tour, I'm convinced what I'm doing is so good, and it was better before, and blah, blah, blah. And that's just a function of sitting in front of something. Right. Sure. Know? Um, the greatest thing about the Bruno show, and you're right, how they move and play is, is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. One, I'm always, even when I'm not happy with my own performance, or I'm stuck in my head and uh, illogically not happy with my own performance, I am proud of the show because he's so good, they're so good, and the way that we set that one up, I'm really proud of the way we did it. And what I mean by that, you know, that one specifically, Bruno's very hands-on. He essentially produces a show the way he would an album. So um, everything you're hearing is basically produced by Bruno as interpreted through me, you know. Um, And with that show, it's a modern show. There's a lot of songs, you know, most pop is a lot of track and bands. 
that's about 50-50. Some songs, there's no track. Some songs, there are tracks. But where we had track, we did it the best way. We I've had a couple other acts where we've done it this way, but his is the best by far, where there's never a drum playing in a track and then the drummer slamming on top of it. Or there, there's never right. some big swampy synth pad on a track that the keyboard player is also copying and you end up with this mud. Like, yeah. things... The tracks were very sparse, and they were very specific, and they only fit in a hole that the band didn't, you know? So right. it was an actual mix, as opposed to just mixing track and band, both doing the same thing, which is just a recipe for mud and disaster. And you find that on the majority of pop tours. So to answer your question, the reason that one did sound so tight and so clean is because we did it right. And Bruno uh, and his people understand. They just get it like very few do in the pop world, of how to make track and band marry. So yeah, right. um, I think that's a big... And we rehearse to death. I mean, it is just the most yeah. running again, running again, running again, running again, practice makes perfect sort of thing to where you can't help but be pretty good, you know? Yeah. Um, I read somewhere that you played a part in the Lady Gaga and the Muppets Holiday Spectacular. <laughs> Can you speak into that? Wow. <laughs> that was insane. Yeah, um... That's funny. I just got off the phone talking about uh, with a guy I used to work with Gaga on earlier. Um, that's funny. That man, all I remember is it was God, we were in L.A. for like a week, and it felt like a year, and it was hysterical watching the Muppets puppeteers. Yeah, that, that was absolutely amazing. Um, no, man, that was just that's another. Awesome. Uh, I couldn't even tell you the stories from that one. But, uh, <laughs> that, it was fun. It was, um, it was a lot of fun. I read somewhere once that you were this. This was during a Chesney outdoor show that the front of house cage almost flew flew away from a storm. I've had a lot of those. I haven't yeah. had a lot of those happen since I moved away from pop up tents is my main source of cover. But I'm right. sure a lot of your listeners still find themselves in that yeah. uh, situation, I and if that thing's not tied one. down properly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know those things will just take up and go. I, I remember catching one with one hand at the Greek theater in Berkeley one time, literally just holding this thing oh my gosh. flying away with the big Bay Area winds. And that's you, like people from the crowd came out to hold it down. That actually happened more than once. That's crazy. Um, so that's not an uncommon thing. I'm sure many of your listeners can attest to that. So what is the first fader on the left of your console? Like what's input one? It's, it's, kick one or kick in for sure okay. i'm pretty generic now i've gotten to where going back to consoles of choice <clears throat> i've gotten to where and this is important for your listeners too particularly the ones who do a lot of different stuff um you know a lot of different acts moving in and out uh no matter what i'm doing no matter what kind of act no matter what genre this or that i keep the ergonomics of my console i keep the layout i try to keep it as similar as possible sure meaning that by the time I get to that second layer or third layer or fourth layer, whatever it might be of drums, you know, the hi-hat is also in that first channel. Or right. the lead vocal, and this is super common, is the first one to the right. You know, or just, I, I try to keep things so there's as much muscle memory can be employed as possible. Right, right. You know, and that helps me a lot. Most of my sessions, no matter if it's, you know, it doesn't matter who the acts are, they're laid out incredibly similar, even across genres, because I just tend to do the same things to the point where I keep things at the same spot on the console. It just helps my brain work more efficiently. 
uh, Chris, what is your um, home theater system? Do you have a cool one? Do you have a cool home theater no. system? There's gr- no, and there's great irony in this. For years, <clears throat> I'd come home and drive around in my, you know, 86 F-150 yeah. pickup that I bought in a, off a of Craigslist for $2,000 okay. in a yeah. Walmart parking lot that had an AM-FM cassette with one speaker that lived behind the seat. You know, that's the thing. You oh, go out man. and you, you're constantly striving for excellence, and then yes. I come home, I'm, and, man, I haven't had a night. I've never had a nice home stereo system look, in my life. That's right now at home. Yeah, I got a couple of little bows attached to a I don't even know what receiver, and then uh, I carry in my backpack a little portable Bose thing, so I have some low end in hotel rooms or right. where you know what I mean. Yeah, like, right. but that's it. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of shut that off. Yeah, my I'm trying to I'm trying to talk my wife into letting get his wife on board, spend some money on yeah on it. Man, I, and uh, don't get me wrong, I would love to be. I would love to get to that point, but it's just never made the priority list once I leave the gig, you know? Yeah. When it comes to, like, mixing and, you know, you said you carry around, uh, like, a little, so you have low end if you're in a hotel room or whatever. Do you uh, do you record your board mixes and go back and listen to them or listen to them with the band ever? Or is that kind of like you cover all that in rehearsal and you kind of don't really? It It's twofold. I do it. I do a lot of it in rehearsal. And then I don't do as much as I used to after the fact. And that's another one of those things that now I'm kind of seeing where I've, I need to get back on board with that. For instance, I remember in the widespread panic days, I would constantly listen, critique, and then with the advent of virtual playback, you know, would like listen to a show and they go, oh, okay, I need to do this, 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 and this. Now I just kind of retain that information throughout the course of the show and know what to work on. But, um, yeah, part of the reason I stopped listening to board mixes when I started working with all of these artists that were in front of the PA, and it would just pain me to go back and listen to the mix and hear it kind of get smeared right. by them being in front of the PA. And uh, but I, I'm trying to get back on board with doing more of that. But yes, in rehearsals, relentlessly and nonstop, do I do it? Yeah. Both depending on who the artist is. A lot of artists they don't really care. They might have a person that cares. Um, and they might have a team of people that care greatly, or you might be bouncing mixes to send to people every day. I just finished doing some stuff with an artist, and that was the case. I was constantly bouncing mixes to send to this big creative team. Sure. And then you become very aware, because you never know who's going to be listening, when the artist's ear is going to be put towards it, and via what format is it going to be presented to them on. Sure. Um, with Bruno, he's involved greatly, so I know exactly where it's going. I know how he's listening to it. I know this and that. So, right. But... It is a critical, you're missing out if you're not doing it. You know, you really are. What's your opinion on um, listening on your headphones when you're mixing? Not like the whole time. When you're mixing? Yeah, like you're mixing a show. Yeah. Do you ever like put your headphones on to check your mix in headphones? What I do, what I use, and I've been on the search, the holy grail for closed back the end-all, be-all of closed-back headphones for ever. You landed on Dr. Um, Beats. Huh? I always gravitate, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a lot of us, I, I always gravitate back towards these the Audio-Technica ATH-M50s. Those yeah. seem to be my standbys. Yeah. Um, although I've had a number, that Ultrasone, 10 years ago, used to make this super prosumer version that I swear is the best closed headphone I've ever used, and they discontinued it. But um, 
Yeah, I go, what, the way I use cans is like this. First of all, I need to know how all my inputs sound in headphones for line check. Sure. You know what I mean? So when I'm not going to be, so if I'm line checking before a show, I need to know what the snare sounds like through my headphones so I can accurately say, yeah, we're good, or whoa, that's weird. Right. You know, stop real quick, because I can't listen to that in the house when the crowd's in there. Also, going into cans, but by the nature of a live event, especially when you're touring, you know, the variables change so often. The rooms change. Everything changes. So what's, you know, in the cans is as close and personal to that input as you can get. Um, right. I'm very big on mic placement being the exact same every day. I'm a stickler for checking multiple times a day. I don't know whether that input is right or not in my headphones. The way I use it during the show is a lot of times if the room's swampy and I'm like, no, not quite sure exactly what's going on. And that's just me being honest. Some rooms just don't sound good. Like, you're kind of just winging it, going, right. I guess we're good. I'll go into the cans, and I'll start adding things together. Like, I'll add the bass and the guitars and the keys and finding out, oh, that's where it's getting swampy. It's when I introduce the keys, so there's something in the keys that's adding to the low-mid content, blah, 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 blah. Right. That's so I use it more, I use, I use them more as a microscope. I rarely go in and, like, solo up the stereo mix, but I will right. go through and pick things out and see how they sum. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Do uh, when you whenever yeah, so, you whenever you play those venues that are um, th- that just aren't good. What's the relationship sure. like? Like if you're doing a show with Bruno and you're like, man, this room, there's just a problem in the, I don't know, some weird low band. Like, are you? Is it? Is he enough knowledgeable to be like, you tell him like, hey, look, it's gonna, you know, this low band is gonna be rough tonight. You know what I mean? Like, how how much of that are is are these artists I think aware of? With- yeah, I would think it, it's it's dependent. You know, I can't. I won't speak to Bruno specifically, but it's depend. It's an artist to artist basis, and you you just learn the artists, and you know the ones. First of all, you learn the ones that are going to sound check. So, if they sound check, you then know they're going to be exposed to this less than ideal situation, probably in its raw state, which means probably it's worse. Right, right. Um, and then you'll learn the ones that care and the ones that don't care. Yeah. Then you also learn. Yeah, they care, but no, they didn't start yesterday. They get it. I'm not going to insult their intelligence or waste my breath by explaining to them we're in an empty room. Whereas other people need constant reinforcement that it's going to get better. So it really is, and that plays into more of the politics and psychology of it all, you know, of how much does this artist really want to hear from me about it? How much do they already know? Mm-hmm. And then there's other people who they're not going to get, it, right. you know, and they're going to wonder why I'm even saying it. So it really is dependent on where you are and who you're there with. Some uh, people absolutely going to have that conversation. With. Sure. Um, if you had, uh, if you could only live with one plugin for the rest of your touring career, but it, here's the thing is it can't be a multi-band compressor. It has to be something okay. else. Yeah. That, and that's a good caveat. That's a good precursor to this question because everyone's going to say a c6 or something similar. yeah right. so so what what would that be but no there's you know we don't you know have what? any plug-in sponsors it's, so yeah you know yet. not yep. yet no not yet. i love it um i'm so inclined to say one of my ua plugs because i'm so in deep with that platform now mm. but the, the, if i'm going to be honest it's a plug-in i haven't used in years because i haven't been on an avid desk in years i miss the crane song phoenix so mm. much i can't tell you Wow! I it just has that it's just a knob, right? It. 
it's just a knob with multiple settings of that knob right. and then three different colorations with yeah. it. But um, I and I have it on Pro Tools, but I don't. You know, rarely am I mixing something just on my laptop. What primarily? Do you I miss use that, that for my. What's that? Sorry, you were gonna. I think you were gonna answer the question. I was gonna ask what you primarily use that on. Yeah, I use it on everything from very, 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 very subtly on a stereo bus okay. to uh, I have a very specific setting. I'll even tell you what it was. Iridescent on the brightest setting, which I can't remember. I think it's, I can't remember what that's called. There's three different colorations. Iridescent on the brightest setting and cranked all the way up uh, on a snare drum. Oh, we'll just okay. It adds this low mid punch plus this little bit of brightness at the top that kind of smiley faces out a snare drum before you do anything. So I would also use it on things like Leslie's that are harsh, and I'd use it with a dark coloration, and I'd use it to soften things, but not, not cranked. Um, so really either on drum inputs or on something that just needs some kind of gluing um, and to color things either, either which way. I really miss using it on Leslie's, so I really, really loved it there. And occasionally on vocals. Right. When I put it there, but I'm missing on a snare drum. I'm missing on this uh, stereo bus. I'm missing on Leslie's. All right. Uh, the, Chris this is gonna be my last question, and then I'll throw I'll throw this to Stereo. Uh, what? How do you make Tom's sound good? <laughs> I mean, like I love uh -huh. Tom's, and I want them to be like I, I like want them to be the loudest thing. But like, is there something right. that you do? What's your go-to kind of process on Tom's? I have a very specific. Uh, two versions of a very specific process here, and it, it's funny that you would ask me that because that's ultimately the way I usually end up getting the sound is they're just louder than everything. But if there is one cheap trick that I employ that I get asked about a lot, <clears throat> it is the toms because I'm a sucker. I don't know if that's from being a kid, child of the '80s or what. I mean, I yeah. love, but um, it, it, yeah, it, yeah, and it's also an easy way if you believe on. It believe on. If you believe in the fact that it's a live mixer, you're both there for audio purposes, but to sort of, uh, let's see, tailor the experience for the audience. A, a loud, clean, cool, well-placed tom roll is a good party trick yes. to get yeah. people. It just makes people react. Mm -hmm. So for me, what I do is all of my toms always go to a bus. And it's very simple. I go in, I listen to, first of all, stickler about mic placement. Um, hopefully tuning is on board uh, as well, because that's really what it all comes down to. But right. let's just assume the tuning's great. Um, I go, and on the individual input, I find whatever the resonant peak is at the bottom. So if it's a rack tom, let's say it's 160. And I actually mm -hmm. emphasize that just mm -hmm. a little. It might be a couple dB. It might be no dB if it's really zero dB, if it's really ringy there. Yeah. Or I might even push it some. I'll find whatever it is in the mid-range, and I'm aggressive here, anywhere from three, 250 to, you know, 1.2. I might even have two cuts. I cut all that stuff out. Then on the input, I'm usually making a boost somewhere between, I hate generalities, but it just seems to be the case, somewhere between 5 and 6K, say 4 to 6K. Then, they so I, each input is handled that way. I then gate it accordingly, and accordingly means I don't, I let the gate, Stay open until the drum is done resonating, unless it's a floor tom that the resonance is too long and is going to further excite the room, in which case I kind of fake a sound. In other words, if it wants to ring for a second and a half, 
I might fake it to appear as though it's more of a half a second read. Right. Which, you know, you can, if you're good with gates, you, between the attack and, excuse me, between the release and hold and the ratio, if you have it, you can find a way to make the doom do what you want and sound natural, not sound super gated. And what's so, your, what's the range? So I handled it. What's your range looking like? Typically? I, I'm a full on guy. Oh, I'm a okay. negative a million. Oh, yeah. Awesome. I don't, to me, I want it to open and then I want it to close. Yeah, I'm afraid of that. And any for awkwardness. Some yeah. And it, well, yeah, I get that. Well, for me, any awkwardness that's left from like symbols or anything else, I'm going to mask with the overhead. So sure. the imperfections that are created by it are going to be smeared positively, yeah. um, you know, with a bit of smoke and mirrors uh, right. from the overheads. And it's just something you learn to do. So I take those inputs, I tailor them that way sonically, both with EQ and the gate. Then they go to a group. In that group, I then typically enhance things at a higher frequency. I'll usually go more like 8K, 9K, put a little more top in there. Um, on the bottom end, I will usually go to around 100 hertz. I may or may not boost at that point. If they're already big and tubby and in a good way and round, I won't. A lot of times I'll put a couple dB there. So I'm putting a lot usually on the top, top end and then a little bit more on the bottom, maybe none. And then here's the kicker. Then I go to the mid-range and I either listen to all the toms at once, like give me a roll, hey man, go through all of them, whatever. And if there's some something common to all of them, I further cut the boxiness. And that's usually, again, in that group, usually from 300 to 600. Um, another way that I do that on occasion, I do this via the Digico all the time, is I'll sometimes put a multiband compressor in there to catch some of that stuff. So yeah. it's only emphasizing, or excuse me, only de-emphasizing, um, only cutting those boxy frequencies. So essentially, I've cut the box, in the drum, only as much as necessary, but somewhat aggressive. And then within the group, I do another stage of it, which creates this really, you know, smiley faced out, yeah. big, huge tom sound. And yeah. then I don't really do any like compression on it. Um, oh, really? I do that multi band, which is really serving more of a subtractive EQ than right. it is. You know, I don't usually, now the compression for me on all my drums is usually done via, you know, a subgroup, a parallel right. type compression thing. So they're, they will be made to explode more through the use of that group. But as far as my standalone tom sound, that's how I do it. Cool. Okay, that's pretty rad. I hope that made sense. No, it does. Um, so yeah, and I stand by that. I I, I would uh, ask anyone to, to do try it that way, and you'll yeah, get results. You really will. Yeah, I'm I'm trying it right and now. And what's cool too <laughs> by doing that, I do that with all my drum stuff. Like I group my kicks, and then I make a kick input. I group my snare, but this guy's got multiple snares. Snare one will have a top or two tops and a bottom, then they go to a group. So I treat that group as the fader I'm really focusing right, on. So right. once my toms are sorted, I'm only focusing on that one group right. as a sound. Once so you kind of have to go through some, yeah, you go through some convoluted series of steps to actually make it more mindless, more simple, and sure. you're thinking less. Right. You know, I'm thinking of one snare, one set of toms, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is the way that you EQ your toms is how we should EQ every input in a mix. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's almost a generic blueprint for EQing drums, if I'm honest. Yeah, you know, look awesome. at the top and the bottom and get rid of the stuff you don't yeah. like in the middle. Mm -hmm. Or let, it, let that stuff in the middle ring because that's where the sonic character is. So, it's, sure. again, as much as I hate generalities, you will, people will find themselves going to these places more times than not. Right. 
and you may or may not have an answer to this question. This is going to be the last question um, because we okay. respect your time. But what what have you found? Maybe it's from personal experience, or it's from observing other guys that come in and mix or whatever for the opening acts or whatever. What do you feel like um, is the biggest mistake people tend to make when they're mixing live? Mm. Or maybe God, some of the busi- biggest mistakes you made starting out, you know? Well, I know <clears throat> for myself, it's just too many. To, to I wouldn't even know where to start. <laughs> I think something I hear a lot I would say two things. One would be vocals with a lot of mid-range content or low-end content that you just don't hear, like, on a record. Now, at the same time, you hear a lot of people with vocals that are far too thin. But a lot of people, you know, there'll be this 500, 600 sort of really fake thing that's both from the nature of a lot of times proximity effect, you know, highly directional capsules used in close proximity or or through the way the room reacts with the microphone or feeds back, not a literal feedback circuit, but it's essentially being put back into itself. You get this really weird, boxy, honky vocal sound. It just doesn't sound clean. Sure. Um, I hear a lot of that, and that sound my ears are really susceptible to. Like It kind of makes my ears close up. You hear a lot of that. And then the other thing would be, and this one's easier said than done because it's a hard thing to do, I hear a lot of mixes that are just really flat. And sure. the worst thing in the world is the live guy all drum mix, and I'm certainly guilty of that. Yeah. As guilty as anyone to where the drums are twice as loud as anything. But right. what you get on the flip side is this thing doesn't have any punch, doesn't have any feel. Guys are like compressing snare drums when all they're doing is removing any transient information at all. And you end up with this boxy, flat, tapery thing and even if it's loud, you're looking around, no one's moving because yeah, there's right. just no movement in the mix. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. It's just really flat. So people, And I think that's also, you know, digital consoles, everything's so dynamic now, I get it, but it's like there's a million compressors. That doesn't mean we have to use all of them, and it doesn't mean we have to use them all with the fastest attack bomb, you know? Right. So right. honky vocals and flat, transient-wise mixes, those are the two things that I hear the most. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, Chris, thank you so yeah. much. Before you go, do you uh, do you have anything uh, on Pooch that we can use against him, or any <laughs> funny stories we could bring up? Everything on Pooch you could use against him. Maybe absolutely, a- we can make a whole episode out of that. Okay, great. That'll no, be our next he's episode. He's my guy, though. Yeah, <laughs> no, he to me that's the gold standard out there. He is the gold standard. Um, to which I'll, you know, and, and I love that about him because he's such. Uh, he's just equally as awesome of a dude, and I know he cares. You know what I mean? And yeah. a lot of times with some big-time front-of-house guys, you get some big-time egos, and I, I got one too, you know. Um, but he's just a great dude with a great mix, and that's how you're supposed to do it. So I admire that guy. But I'd love to rip on him if you ever want to. Yeah, we'll do another episode where it'll just be yeah. just Absolutely. Him. But, yeah, he, he recommended you on when we asked him, we're like, man, who would – who should we have on the show? I love like, that. You call that, that. I'm honored for that. Yeah, man. Yeah. That, we, we've got a, he and I've got a good thing. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll let him know that he's got a check coming his way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. He'll get some royalties. All right. Well, thanks, Chris, for joining us. This is awesome. Yeah. Yeah, man. Thank you guys so much. And uh, let me know if you guys ever want to do this again, too. I'd be happy to. Totally. Thanks, man. <laughs>